Hello, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is your podcast to dive deeply into how to become a mature, psychologically growing and evolving member in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is Valerie. Did I say that? Say it again. It's still Valerie. And this is Nathan. How? um, Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Nathan here. (laughs) All right, that was an awkward beginning, but we're going to just roll with it. Okay, good to be with each of you today. And we are, I'm happy to say, we are nearing the end of this experience, walking through together the For the Strength of the Youth uh, 2022. (laughs) I just, I don't know where I am today, clearly in the 1900s. So the For the Strength of the Youth 2022 pamphlet. And yes, we're doing this to address the pamphlet itself, but we also decided this would be a great jumping off point for us to really get a good look at and have some great discussions on this position statement for the Latter-day Saint Church. So why don't we go ahead and just get started today? We're going to talk about the section called Your Body is Sacred. I knew this one was going to be a loaded one. I wasn't even thinking this time that this would be simple. I knew that we were going to have a lot to say. So do you want to say anything to um, open us up before you read, or you want to just read, Nate? What's your fancy? Um, yeah, just buckle in for a long one, folks. Oh, oh, come on! You're going to talk him out of it. <laughs> just, just turn up the thing to like 1.5 or 1.75. I noticed there was an definitely. update on the Apple um, podcasting app. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Okay, your body is sacred. Starts off with your body is an amazing gift from your heavenly Father. He gave it to you to help you become more like him. Having a body gives you increased power to exercise your freedom to choose. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ can help you see your body from God's perspective. And that makes a big difference in your choices about what you do with your body and how you care for it. Okay, so thoughts? Well, I think a couple things come up right right off the bat. The first one is if we wanted to choose an opportunity to talk about gender and eternal gender and the fact that at least in our current theology, we only really um, spend much time learning about a male deity. um, What we're actually saying here is that you have a body like God and yet I don't know. At least half of us don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, not like God the Father. That's... Like God the Father. That's right. my that's my point. And so this would have been once again a really, really uh, lovely and and very appropriate place to mention two genders of of deity. Sure. And yeah. so, by nature of the fact that they didn't, that does in some ways leave women to. I mean, I was reading that myself and going, "Well, wait a second. Let's just see here." So it talks about. Um, I'm looking back at it. it talked about having a body gives you increased power to exercise freedom. That's fine. Um, oh wait, you no no no, you didn't scroll. Uh-huh. It just says it gives you the power to become like God. And what we're talking about here is is God's plural. Uh, we know from the Genesis account that it says that uh, God said, "Let us make man in our image and after our likeness." It's plural, and there's been a lot of debate over what does that plurality mean. Um, in our culture, in our church, we've decided that was Jehovah, and certainly Jehovah would have been present, um, but the fact that it went from a singular, um, God created the earth, God created the heavens, he created the sun and the moon, to a plural certainly implies that more was going on there. 
I've heard people interpret that as the royal we, that God talks to himself in the royal we at that particular point. I don't think any of that makes sense. I think this is clearly a manifestation of a divine feminine who came down and they made man and woman, male and female, in their plural images. That that sure makes a lot of sense to me. I think that's the only way that I can possibly interpret that scripture. Right. Um, I do believe Jehovah was there also. But but the fact that the Bible goes out of its way, the New Testament goes out of its way to indicate the plurality of God's presence for the creation of male and female in their images, to me, indicates there had to be a female. Well, especially because what what God is creating, God plural is creating, is 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 masculine and feminine bodies and identities. Absolutely. And so it makes absolutely no sense to not, if if they are being created in their image, that would encapsulate both genders. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now in general though, I do like this paragraph. I do think the body gives us power to choose. I do think it helps us in our progression to become like our heavenly parents. And I do think that understanding the plan of salvation does give us some idea of how to use our bodies and how to care for them. I I think those are actually some good statements there too. No, I agree with you there. I, the one thing that I just, I just, I'm going to leave what I'm about ready to say with a big question mark, a big, I don't know. And that is this, Nathan. I feel like sometimes we try too hard to extrapolate what eternity is going to look like based on our earth life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when we do that, we're always walking into trouble. Yes. Right. And so it's this idea that is, are we created in God's image or is God created in our image? And do we actually give God um, identities that really have more to do with ourselves as human beings than we do with reality. And do we sort of say something is true because it's really all we have the understanding or imagination to understand now. Okay. That's my preface to what I'm about ready to say next. I don't know how to make sense of gender and sexuality in the next life. And the reason why is this, when you have a father and a mother in heaven, which I I love that concept. I love a masculine face of God and I love a feminine face of God. I, that feels right to me. And yet at the same time too, are we through the back door introducing a heterosexual only eternity? And so I don't know the answer to that other than to say, maybe what we, maybe we don't really know what eternity and what sexuality even looks like in the eternities. And that's where I'm having to just, I'm pausing because when I accept one expanding truth, it almost in some ways um, forecloses other expanding truths. And so luckily as a human, I get to say, I don't know, but I know that God is inclusive of all of all of their children down here on this earth. And so maybe we don't have that answer. Can you, um, do you want to drop some knowledge on me and help me through this? <laughs> I don't know that I have any knowledge to drop. Uh, it's funny because I was just talking about this in one of our group Marcos this morning. Is that right? Um Yeah, we have a total of about 10 passages of scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants in the New Testament that try to paint a picture of what heaven looks like. And I was thinking, you know, if we only had 10 passages of scripture that we could use to paint what earth life looks like, we could come nowhere near it. We have no idea. We couldn't couldn't paint a picture of earth life in 10 volumes of 10 encyclopedias, much less 10 scriptures. So I I do agree with you on that point, uh, that we, we really have no idea. I also do think that there are lots of things in life that have been set up to mirror for us and to help us to progress into whatever eternity is going to look like. Yeah. But I think we know it, you know, a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a tenth uh, of anything. And so 
yeah, I think it's hard to extrapolate uh, too too much uh, about that. You know, that that being said, we only have the tools that are in front of us, okay? And so having to use what is in front of us, Earth Life, as sort of our model for our the talking points is going to be sort of a necessary baseline. And we're going to just have to say, you know, there may be things that are different. There may be things that are the same and we don't know, but we have to go off of what's in front of us. Well, yes, but, and my big but <laughs> on this one, that's from Phoebe's Big Adventure. Couldn't <laughs> <laughs> help it. Anyways, my but here is that we have to, while we're looking at earth life, and yes, while that is maybe all we have combined with what we have read and what we've learned from great thinkers and from scripture, we have to always make sure that what we're reading into and interpreting does not exclude anybody. Sure. And that's where I think we get into trouble is we, we read these verses and we make these assumptions about what heaven is going to look like and what family and belief and gender and sexuality is going to look like based on very little information. Then we call it eternal truth. And as soon as it starts marginalizing anybody that doesn't happen to fit into the majority narrative, that is when I think we have to take a step back and say, I don't know, and and practice the maturity of living in the mystery that is inclusive of all of God's children. No, I, I agree with that. And I think that church leaders have made statements that are very absolute around some things that I don't think that they even know that they should have made. Um, you know, Boyd K. Packer once said that there's absolutely no way there would ever be a spirit body, you know, mismatch. And I, how do how, how does he know that? I mean, right. where did he get that from? You know, Joseph said that the same sociality that exists among us here will exist among us there. And the church took that to mean, you know, heterosexual, uh, white, middle class marriages are what's going to persist in the, into the eternities. Well, and, if it was Joseph, it could have been polygamous marriages. And that's what we think. We, we know that's what he thought. And so clearly. Yeah, what he thought not, and then what the church, you know, what the church later taught us about that uh, has continued to change. Of course. The sociality that we see in front of us now is that ten, somewhere between five and 10 percent of our brothers and sisters are gay and lesbian or have other uh, LGBTQ type qualities. And so if that same sociality is going to continue to exist as it does in this life into the next life, then you could read that scripture as saying that, you know, that's going to continue. Well, and you could also say that sociality in the next life is similar in this life in that people learn to, they grow, they love, they care for, they nurture. Right. That to me is sociality, not, yeah, sure. the, not the exact details of the constellation of what this looks like and who is communicating with whom and who is with whom. I think that has much less to do with what it's like to be, uh, be God-like in our actions, in our, the ways that we actually experience love and treat those around us. No, absolutely. Love is always the basis for, right. for you know, any godlike sociality. So I, I do agree with that. And, and I think the point is, you know, even as you and I are usually 100% on the same page on, on things, even yeah. you and I don't really know, uh, you know, what, what exactly to make of it. So we'll do our best to, to be sensitive on these things as we talk about it. Right. Just admitting up front that, that we, and, and in like all likelihood, no one uh, knows exactly what gender and marriage and family are going to look like in the next life. We know what it, we don't know what it is, but I think it's much easier to know what it isn't. Right. 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 And there are certain few things that we can lean on with certainty that it isn't, it's, it is an exclusion. Right. It isn't leaving anyone out. Correct. 
Um, it's always encompassing a very, very large circle that includes all of God's children. Right. It's not going to be breaking up families because right. people were born differently exactly. than we you know, thought they should be or right. whatever. So. Okay. Well, that we just made it through the first two sentences in 10 minutes. So that is a very bad sign. We're going to need to pick up the pace. <laughs> okay. Off you go. <laughs> just for the record, you asked the question. <laughs> I, just, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help myself. Okay. Eternal truth. Your body is in the image of God, the most glorious, majestic being in the universe. I should say beings, plural, thank you. But the scriptures compare our bodies to a holy temple, a place where the spirit can dwell. Of course, your body is not perfect now, but the experiences you're having with your body can help you to prepare to receive one day a perfect resurrected and glorified body. Okay, thoughts? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and start? Okay. Well, a couple of things. First of all, this this uh, scripture, and they're quoting Paul here. Of course, when Paul says our body is a temple, um, that scripture, has, that that phrase, your body is a temple, has been so misused in, in our culture. Um, our bodies are temples in the sense that they are extensions of the divine, God himself, God herself, um, and that their spirits uh, do uh, dwell in our bodies, but it has a whole lot less to do with how we use our bodies or the condition of our bodies and the fact that the bodies are really just an extension of their creation. When we try to put a condition on it, like your body is only holy if you do certain things and then the gods can speak to you, that is incorrect in my opinion. The, the right way to look at that is that your, your body is a holy extension of God. And because of that, God will talk to you. And as you get closer to God, you will learn proper ways to care for your body. I think it's a totally reverse uh, psychology the way the church has used that particular phrase. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I, I couldn't agree more. This has so many, uh, this resonates so much with our um, increasing understanding of Jesus Christ through Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ. I know many of you out there have asked us to, uh, where do I start in Richard Rohr? That, well, I would say that's my, for me, that would be my number two book. I, I think falling upward would be my first recommendation just to get at your, you get, get your footing with him. Universal Christ though, is the book that talks about how, uh, Jesus, the man is the exemplar that showed what it meant to love in human form. And Christ is the essence of what it means to emanate and embody love throughout the entire universe. And that all of us are part of this beautiful Christ mystery. And so therefore, of course, because we have the seed of God within us, we have Christ within us, we are all temples or we are all holy. We are all pure. And as we, as we embody that and actually realize it, uh, then we move forward with our own evolving and growing um, capacities to use and to be in connection with our bodies in ways um, that... Uh, that really sort of resonate with what it feels like to be a child of divine parents in that temple. Yeah. And it's not about you have to dress this way or that way or do this or that. And it's not, it's not like that. No, not at all. No. Um, and to just build on that, cause I love it. The body of Christ is not a metaphor. Like, you know, we talk about in the church, like the church is the body of Christ. And so we need bishops and primary workers and all these other things. The body of Christ is actually a, a literal existence that we all have a part of where the, the Christ, the power of, of some divine creator, has created all of us and, uni and continues to unify all of the human race. And that body, that incarnation that we have taken place 
uh, in us is sacred and holy and always will be no matter what. Uh, and so I, I agree with you on this is that first we are holy and loved. Then we learn what that means for us and, and how we choose to care for our bodies. It's not the other way around. And we're going to actually go deeper into how this um, principle that Nathan and I are expanding, how this applies in, in different ways than what we think are explained in this, in this pamphlet. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So your soul is made up of your body and your spirit. For that reason, physical health and spiritual health are closely connected. The Savior revealed the word of wisdom to teach principles of caring for your body and to promise physical and spiritual blessings. Now, in general, I do agree with this. I, 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 I absolutely agree that the physical and the spiritual are connected. Absolutely. In fact, I don't even really see them as being two separate things. I think we're just talking about manifestations of the same thing, which is that, that God essence, that Christ essence yep. uh, in creation. Um, and now they've, they've kind of taken this good principle and then they threw in the word of wisdom. Okay. It's like, it's like they always, or not always there, there's a frequent, there's a trend here that we begin with these beautiful truths right. that are, that one would, one would not in, be inclined to argue with at least these you and me. Yeah. <laughs> and then what they do is they like insert the dogma. Right. Exactly. And it's like, wait a minute, how did you, where did that come from? Why are we needing to talk? Well, we know why we need to talk about it because that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> but the essence of this is these principles in general, everyone are oftentimes really lovely. And then we move into the Mormon flavored prescriptions of how to do it right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, the word, the word of wisdom, you know, and it talks a little about it further down in, in a little more detail. So we'll be uh, brief here, but but, you know, orthodoxy, which is this idea of having, you have to have these right beliefs and these, these very narrow things uh, that I think it's just very, very problematic. And so um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about the actual elements of the word of wisdom when they bring them up later in the, uh, in the, in this uh, section, but now we're going to get into one. Uh, this, this is, this one's really loaded. Uh, we need to be, um, we need to spend some time on this one. Sexual feelings are the, is the next section. Sexual feelings are an important part of God's plan to create happy marriages and eternal families. These feelings are not sinful. They are sacred. Okay, we're off to a good start. However, because sexual feelings are so sacred and so powerful, God has given you his law of chastity to prepare you to use these feelings as he intends. The law of chastity states that God approves of sexual activity only between a man and a woman who are married. Many, I think it says one man and one woman. Am I right? Uh, sexual activity only between a man and oh, a sorry. woman okay. who are married. Many in the world ignore or even mock God's law. But the Lord invites us to be his disciples and live a standard that is higher than the world's. Okay. So, you want to start? You want me to start? Well, let's just start with, I don't know how many times we have inserted heteronormative theology in this doctrine, <laughs> but it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's it's woven throughout it, which I know we all know this. And it, in some ways, it, it is sad because I would, I would like to believe and, and hold out hope that as science becomes more and more clear, around the nature of homosexuality, especially um, that, that religion and our religion would catch up mm -hmm. and start recognizing. I mean, I, I already had the sense 
that there was something off even years ago before I started actually really digging into to the theology around gender and sexuality in the church. And then as I have read the science behind it, it's unequivocal. Yeah. And yet here we are in multiple different places in this pamphlet teaching our, our youth and reinforcing this um, from, a, from an official stance that something that is categorically not scientifically validated or validatable. Yeah. Right. And so that that's my first my first sadness and struggle. I have more, but why don't you um, take off for a second? <laughs> well, I, I completely agree with you on this. And, you know, even from the, the stance of the orthodoxy, I, I got to tell you that um, I think I've mentioned before, but uh, I want to give kudos to Jennifer Finlayson Fife, who who I listened to a podcast of hers one time, and she made some points on this that were just absolutely astounding. And, and one of them was, look, even if you really have the orthodox view of this, let me ask you this question. You know, I'm paraphrasing her, but she's basically saying, are you really saying that it's healthier, healthier to tell someone who is gay or lesbian that they have to live a life of isolation and solitude and um, celibacy to live a life of shame, feeling like they are broken, they are wrong. God is, you know, not on their side and that nothing is going to be happy or healthy in, until the next life when, when they as a broken individual be fixed. Is that really the, is that really the God you believe in? Is that the God that we love and know, and that knows us and loves us that would ask any of our brothers and sisters to live this miserable, lonely, isolated, self-damning life and, and, and pray for the next life and, and, and to have to live with suicidal ideations because you can't wait to get to the next life to be fixed. I, I don't see a God doing that. The God that I believe in is absolutely a God of love and a God of kindness. And he wants everybody to grow in this life. And having an intimate relationship is a part of growth in this life. We learn to love for each other when we pair bond. We learn to love when we have a, uh, someone we care about. That's how we learn forgiveness and to be forgiven and how to love and be loved and how to accept and to grow and to change and to ask for, for forgiveness and kindness from each other. That kind of growth that comes from the marriage relationship is a key part of God's plan for us. And the opposite of it can be quite psychologically damaging. And so, I, and I'm not saying that everybody has to be married. Not everybody wants that. But for people who do want that, to deny them of it is far more psychologically damaging than, than any supposed commandment that may be present here. So when I heard Jennifer say that, I thought to myself, I get it. I get it. I, I may not have all the answers of what the eternities are going to look like, but I sure know that I will not be part of creating a hell on earth for people here who want to love and be in relationship and have those growth experiences that, that you and I have been able to have in our marriage right. um, of personal development and so forth. I, I won't be part of creating that hell on earth. I, I just don't think that that's the God that I would believe in. Yeah, that's beautifully said, Nathan. Thank you for that. I love your passion on that. I, I, well, I love it honestly, because that was not you. No, it wasn't a couple me. of years ago and you were actually pretty homophobic. Well, I was, mm -hmm. I, I will say this, that mm -hmm. I didn't have enough information to, yeah. to really have an opinion that I thought I had, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but, but I, like I said, I want to give credit to Jennifer because um, when she presented that, I think it yeah. was up to the mama dragons, a podcast that you had me listen to, yep. it, it opened my eyes. And I said, yes, that, that, that cannot be God. 
Yeah. That cannot be what God really is thinking. So yeah, no, I, I love that podcast and I love Jennifer. She was uh, actually my very first mentor, even in graduate school. She's helped me for many, many years yeah. become who, um, who I've become and who I'm becoming. So I'm, I, I'm very grateful for her. So let's move on and talk a little bit about, I just want to say one quick thing before we move on to the invitations. Once again, we kind of move back into this languaging around how the world may do this wrong and may mock us, mock mm -hmm. God's law. It just sounded, this entire paragraph, if I were to time travel myself back into um, my adolescent Valerie self, this paragraph would have frightened me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very scary. Mm -hmm. uh, the way they use the word sinful, these feelings mm -hmm. are not sinful. Like the word sinful, I don't know, maybe I'm just triggered by the word sin, but it's so unloving. And I think that's probably why the doctrine of, of Richard Rohr and the doctrine of Terrell and Fiona Givens of we are, we're, we're wounded. We're not sinners. Yeah. And I even had somebody email me the other day and say, I am going to, um, oh gosh, what did he say? It was lovely. He says, I'm going to try my hardest to actually stop using the word savior and start using the word healer mm -hmm. with the capital H. And mm -hmm. it just gave me chills. And yeah. I thought, oh my goodness, because I don't necessarily attach negative feelings to the idea of a savior. But at the same time, I like the concept of healer mm -hmm. better than I actually like the word savior. If sure. we're going to write, if we're going to like get right down to what these each mean. Yeah. Yeah. Or transformer, I, you know, same, same idea. Not, not, not the little guy running around <laughs> the cartoons. But... Transformer is a good one, but yeah. it does bring up the, yes. the cartoon from the, once again, I think that was back in the nineties. Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Maybe there's still, actually, I think they're still around. Touche to your Pee Wee Herman reference, but that's right. Um, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, it's, it's the doctrine of in Christ as interpreted by some of these great thinkers. Yes. Uh, can you imagine just for a second, this pamphlet coming out in the 1840s? saying that marriage is between a man and a woman. You know, if, if we were in the Nauvoo period and we had, yeah. we had, you know, men running around with 50 wives and practicing not just polygamy, but polyandry. And we have the teenage girls that are, you know, being approached by, by the 12 apostles to become right. these wives. And, and yet we're teaching the kids, right? It's between a man and a woman, <laughs> unless the prophet comes to you and then it's okay. So, but I think the reason why I actually thought about this and it's in my own notes, the reason why I think it says a man and a woman is to actually speak into our history and the movements that have followed where there are to this day, multiple fundamentalist movements who still practice poly right. polygamy. And so we have created that monster. And I don't mean to be um, negative or, or push. How do I say this? I don't want to be disrespecting people that are um, a part of those sects, I guess you could say, um, as individuals. And yet at the same time, when we talk in church or in formal settings or even on the media that we are not connected or related to those movements, especially the more violent ones, that is outright not true. <laughs> Exactly. We absolutely are connected to them and they are a product of our own uh, sort of spotty and um, su suspect church history, right? <laughs> yeah. And so we really do need to take some ownership that we have created that. And so I think that that to me was why a man and a woman right. is in there because that is something that is still um, in some ways, in some places, very much alive. You know what that reminds me of? Mm. Reminds me of that scene in, in the Casablanca for those who have seen Casablanca where the Louis, the guard, and the protagonist um, 
are gamblers. They just gamble, gamble, gamble all the time, all the time, all the time. And then suddenly the Germans come in and there's like, they're, they're going to shut the casino down for gambling. And Louis turns on his friend and says, I am shocked to find gambling in Casablanca. And then, you know, they bring out his, and he's like, oh, sir, here's your winnings. And he's like, oh, thanks. And he takes them, you know, secretly and runs off. And it's like that. It's like, you know, we're shocked to find that marriage could be between more than one man and How one woman. How could this possibly have How happened? happened? <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait. Oh, wait, we did that. Here's your winnings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, are... and honestly, sadly, less than a hundred years ago, it's been, it's been inside of a hundred years that we were practicing polygamy. Yeah. You know, um, if you think about the two manifestos and they were practiced well, well after the, the first manifesto and even into the second manifesto. And so yeah. it's not ancient history. Yeah. I'm sorry to say it's yeah. yeah, it's still it's still very much there. OK. All right. Yeah. Invitations. Here we go. Sorry. Uh, treat your body and others bodies with respect. As you make decisions about your clothing, hairstyle and appearance, ask yourself, am I honoring my body as a sacred gift from God? Heavenly Father wants you to see each other for who you really are, not just physical bodies, but beloved spirit children with a divine destiny. Avoid styles that emphasize or draw inappropriate attention to your physical body instead of who you are as a child of God with an eternal future. Let moral cleanliness and love for God guide your choices. Seek counsel from your parents. Yeah. Okay. okay, well, let's just start with one plus I liked. I actually, and I don't know how you're going to respond to this. By the way, the fact that you said we we thought we agree on almost 100%, I thought that was adorable and generous, but probably not true. <laughs> so We agree on most things. I think we talk um, until one of us pats the mat and says, okay, maybe. <laughs> but we definitely talk things to death until we figure it out, or at least we come to something that maybe is something in the middle, right? Okay, so let me just, um, di I digressed, but I th I liked the part that said, ask yourself. Mm. I thought that was great because once again, I'm very, very interested in and supportive of any kind of a, a document or a theology that in, invites us to be our own agents, to make our own choices according to what feels good and right to ourselves. Yeah. Did you, how did you, what was your uh, sense of that? No, I absolutely like that. Um, ask yourself. I think you're asked, they suggest asking yourself the wrong question, but that's oh. okay. Did I read it wrong? No, no. Ask yourself. Absolutely. It says, am I honoring my body as a sacred gift from God? Okay. Why don't you riff off of that then? Talk about, it sounds like you read that in a slightly different way, which I, I love. Go no, ahead. No, no. But I love the fact that it is ask yourself because the, the whole point of our podcast is to introduce the idea of spiritual and psychological agency. Yep. So when they say, ask yourself, I, I completely agree so with you. Ask your bishop or ask <laughs> your prophet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right? Or down at the bottom, ask your parents, which I mean, it's probably closer. Yeah. It's closer because I mean, parents should be should be a guide, but but ultimately, you are your own agent, right? Yes. What what I don't like this is, am I honoring my body as a sacred gift from God? Because again, it to me, it makes it a, a conditional statement. My body is a sacred gift from God. Period. I don't have no to. No matter what do I do with it. Thing or mm -hmm. to, you know, it's not about too much, not enough, not the right styles, not the right colors how it impacts other people. Exactly. It's just what it is. And, yes. and later it talks about, it says inappropriate attention. Well, what is inappropriate? Okay. So to me, the body is a, a way that we self-express in a lot of ways. Um, you know, when, when one of our children wanted to get some, uh, some tattoos, she asked us to write our names, to sign our names 
uh, for her. Her pet name. Our pet. Our pet names our to pet her names of her in her, in our own handwriting. And because I'm right-handed and Valerie's left-handed, she wanted to have inscribed on her right hand and on her left hand, right hand for me, left hand for Valerie, in our own handwriting, those pet names for her, that we had for her. So, was, so that let's talk. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So that. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think you were missing the the sweetest part. She said, "I want to have you with me." wherever I go, mom and dad, yeah. so that when I'm having a bad day, I can look down and I can see your in your handwriting, the names that you called me as a child, as a little girl. Yeah. And we were both like, that is the sweetest compliment a child could <laughs> give her parents. Exactly, right? Yeah. Now, the old Nathan would have refused to even send the, the handwritten, uh, I love you, baby, which is what I called her, what, what she wrote. The old Nathan would have refused to do that because I would have had to plant my flag and say, no, tattoos are bad. And we, I can't be a participant in this. And the, the new Nathan was like, that is a really, really sweet expression of self-expression that she wanted to use on her physical body so that she can see it and have that physical reminder. And so, yeah, I think that you have to be very careful when you say drawing inappropriate attention, um, because that's a, that's a loaded word. But because you, because as you pointed out, it says, ask yourself, I at least like that they're giving them the opportunity to make that decision for themselves. What is the meaning behind this? Right. And I think, I think that talking about using this language here, avoid styles that emphasize or draw t a inappropriate attention to your physical body. I think that's a coded way of saying that's the modesty talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that, right. I mean, I think that's what they're saying it there. Is. And yet. What I'm I'm here to say is that while I think there is something beautiful about internalizing something, an idea of of honoring our own bodies, that is going to look different for every individual in every family, in every home, in every culture. And I think oftentimes our hyper intense um, focus on covering up the body is it brings up a lot of sexual angst mm -hmm. and it actually causes more problems as opposed to less problems. Let me give a funny example from our family. I exercise every morning. Um, we have a little home gym in our, in our house and my, our children, including our sons, since they have been born, they see me walking around in biking shorts and a sports bra every single morning. There is nothing sexually loaded about a girl in a sports bra for our, for our sons. Right. They just are so incredibly used to it that something actually came up in a conversation about a girl in a sports bra not very long ago. And one of our sons was completely confused. <laughs> like he did. He was like, is that inappropriate? Like what, what does that even mean? Like he, he didn't even get it because in the Hamaker home, that was normal. Yeah. His seeing me that way was nothing that was, um, that brought up any kind of loaded messaging about inappropriateness or immodesty or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think you could go to other cultures and notice the same thing in the sexually Correct. angsty cultures. Oftentimes there's a higher incidence of problems mm -hmm. than there are in the cultures that more normalizes a different way of self-expressing that isn't as worried about exactly how one dresses and how much is covered. You know, whether the porn shoulders are covered or not or whatever, you know, we are um, as a church, we are we are very conservative about what we like the strange places where we plant our flags in terms of of the modesty business. And yeah. it's it's not helpful and it's not healthy. And it really gets in the way of our having a really open and healthy relationship with our own bodies and even the people around us. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, so two things come to my mind on that. So yeah. first of all, in the, in the you know Genesis account. Adam and Eve, Genesis 
2.25 said that they were naked in the garden and they were not ashamed. There was no shame in, in being uh, unclothed. And when they came before God, because they discovered they were naked, the first thing God said to them is, who told you you were naked? Yeah, why is this a big deal? It wasn't, I didn't tell you that that was a problem. Yep. Well, you know, when, when did this become a problem all of a sudden? Who, you know, it, well, it was Satan. It was the accuser, right? That told them that they were naked and told them that was a problem. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should all be running around naked. But what I'm saying is, is that a lot of our anxiety around sex came from Satan, not from God. And that's depicted in the Genesis account. Well, it's it's inviting us to be more and more estranged from what it means to be human and accepting and loving of our full selves. Yeah. Right. And so I think if we could integrate into our education of our children, once again, a low anxiety relationship with our bodies, including, I think one of the very healthiest things we can do is for example, integrate the great art into our homes, right? Have an art book on the table that shows the statue of David, for example, and other pieces of art that normalize the human, the adult human body. I think another thing that is really, really healthy for families to do if they are have children and the mother is one who chooses to, to breastfeed her child is allow the other children to see that as something that is absolutely normal. Yeah, normal and bonding. There's nothing sexual about that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the one place where I do think that it is important to teach our children is, is that is this. There are there are times when you can use your body and your sexual expression as an expression of a false self. So a false self is one that believes that their self-worth is incorporated into their body. How thin I am, how beautiful I am, how um, you know sultry can I be to, to draw attention to a false part of ourselves. But when we are looking at our true self, we are true children of God. He gave us our bodies. He's not ashamed of our nakedness. We, sh we should not be ashamed of, of the human body. Anatomy books at BYU-Idaho do not need chastity bars across uh, the genitalia, okay? Because, because the baseline is the human body is beautiful. Sexual relationships are healthy. And that should be the baseline. Yeah. Now, I do agree that we shouldn't use sex as a way to flaunt the false self. But we create so much anxiety around it that we're making the problem worse. And I think your example of, you know, mom, why are you in a sports bra? Because I'm working out. Right. Right. It, that, that's what we do. We work out. We, we, we dress down. We get high. That's, that's how it is. Yes. And I think the other thing to do as we teach this principle is to help. Well, let me put it this way. When I work with my own clients and I've worked with quite a few people around sexual issues, if I find that someone, for example, has had um, a history of, of sexual compulsively acting out, and that is not an unusual occurrence in both genders, I'm never interested necessarily in, oh, that's bad. I wouldn't even think about that. What I've been looking at is what is it that's going on that somehow drove this behavior right. where they were trying to get a healthy need met and doing so in a way that was not um, in their very best interest as they were trying to evolve and um, be made over in the image of God. Exactly. The folks that I work with that struggle with these kinds of behaviors they're not doing these things because they're trying to um, be sinful or to make God angry. They're actually suffering. They're in pain. They're doing something um, because it is a function of something else that's going on where they're not getting all of their, um, their intimacy needs met. And they feel, and, and so they're trying. And what we need to do is we need to help them feel lovable, seen, known, understand 
what was driving that behavior. And it never even comes up about the law of chastity. Right. <laughs> that wouldn't even, I wouldn't even think that wouldn't cross my mind right. to talk about that. So it's, once again, I think there are some fundamental principles deep, deep, deep down inside of this document that are beautiful and good. I think oftentimes though, the execution of, and the way we actually teach these principles on the ground completely um, actually confuse us, confuse our kids, bring up a lot of fear, a lot of angst, a lot of discomfort, a lot of anxiety. And I think one of the bigger problems too that I've noticed is oftentimes the reason, excuse me, the reason why our kids and our adolescents struggle in becoming sexually healthy is because their parents aren't. Their parents don't know how to talk about it. Their parents have lots and lots of anxiety themselves around sexual issues. And they don't know how to make sense of it themselves in a coherent enough way to help their children understand the the sacred nature of the theology of the body and sexuality inside of our doctrine that is, in fact, very pro-body and we're pro-eternal life and we're pro-sex. In some ways, we do a pretty good job, or at least we have the foundations Mm -hmm. to do a good job, but we don't oftentimes know how to articulate it well because it isn't embodied in our own way of living as sexual beings. Right. So if somebody, to, to kind of wrap this section up, if somebody is participating in a sexual behavior that could be considered dangerous or self-destructive or destructive to an otherwise beautiful relationship, the question that you're saying we need to ask is not why are you violating the, the law of chastity, you bad sinner person, but it's where are you hurting? What part of you, what part of your true self has been hurt by the, by your shadow Where do we need to dig deep and figure out what's going on where this is just the manifestation of a problem, not the actual problem? Right. Yeah. And celebrate ourselves as beautifully. Um, You know, we are sexual in nature. That is not the problem. Yeah. Because I mean, we're certainly not promoting that, you know, that teenagers should all be having sex in high school. But what we're saying is, is that when you truly understand who we are, you will know what are the, the safe and appropriate ways to handle your body and just making a bunch of shaming rules isn't going to get at the core of the problem. We have to help people know who they really are deep down inside, and then they can properly make their own safe decisions. Well, and I actually think this next paragraph goes deeper into that. Yeah. So you want to go on to this? Yeah. Okay. So why don't you read actually? Uh, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So the next paragraph says do things that will strengthen your body. Nothing that will hurt or damage your. Uh, Nothing that will do things that will strengthen your body. Nothing that will hurt or damage it. Sorry. Enjoy with gratitude the many good things God has provided. And remember that alcohol, tobacco, coffee, tea, and other harmful drugs and substances are not for your body or your spirit. Even helpful substances like prescription drugs can be destructive if not used correctly. Uh, That last sentence is actually pretty good. Um, helpful things can can be destructive if not used correctly. I would just extrapolate that to everything in the word of wisdom. Right. right? That's exactly my, <laughs> that was my notes too, is is I think if we were to just say, um, let's see here. I, I might say smoking is the exception. I, I don't know of any health benefits of smoking. Right. But blanket statements on just about everything else don't feel right to me. Let me ask you this, Nathan. Even though I completely agree about smoking, that it, and, and I think you could, you know, you uh, illegal drugs, And yet at the same time, is it the place of an institution to say exactly what is and is not allowed, especially sort of to to make covenants with God? I would would actually, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here and I'm just playing with an idea here. 
why would it not be better to teach us correct principles about how to honor and internalize the sacred nature of this beautiful gift that is our body and then um, allow us to discern for ourselves and parents in their own homes can work with their own children to help teach them correct principles without it being prescribed from from the outside Correct. Are you, how are you feeling about no, that? No, 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 no. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I, I always will plant my flag on the place of psychological and spiritual agency over anything else. Uh, my point was with the last sentence that, that things can be destructive if not used correctly is that alcohol actually has health benefits. And, sure. and no matter what they said in the 80s about, oh, it's not the wine, it's the grape juice. That's not true. Okay. It has been shown that the alcohol in wine reduces stress, which then reduces cortisol, which has health benefits, period. Okay? Yeah. And it has actually just been shown recently that people who drink a cup of coffee a day live longer, period. End of discussion. Okay. Mm. So yes, there are addictive problems with alcohol. Yes, there are addictive problems with too much caffeine. I get that. But the point of the last sentence was that anything can be destructive if used in excess, Okay. Right. What we need to do. Well, I'm sorry. No. And so, so I just say prescri pres prescribing no alcohol or no coffee actually doesn't make any sense. My point was on the cigarettes is that there's, that is an exception. Okay. There are no health benefits of cigarettes. I'm not saying we should prescribe one way or the other, but, but there is no health benefit of smoking. Right. All these other things that are in there really in moderation actually do have health benefits. That was my point. So, yes. And I think that the last sentence here that talks about even helpful substances like prescription drugs can be destructive if not used correctly. Now, I, I personally think that's probably uh, was inserted in there because our church has a problem with, with prescription drugs. Sure. And I think if you were to take a couple steps back, you could look at some of the other doctrine and, and policy and theology that wounds people that they are trying to numb themselves from by the use of prescription drugs. So if we really, if we really wanted to work with um, and and sort of overcome and heal people from uh, the abuse of prescription drugs, what we need to actually do is chase the pain, not prescribe a rule to say don't get addicted. Exactly. So so in a broader sense, what we're talking about is addiction uh, more than we are the particular substances. And the question behind addiction is, what pain are you hiding from? What pain are you trying to cover up? And that is by far the more psychologically healthy question to be asking than what are you doing? It's not about stop doing this. It hurts you. It's more about what is it that you're suffering from that brings you to the need to abuse a prescription medicine? I right. think we've probably said that enough times, but it, it matters. So once again, in this document, it doesn't necessarily talk about the pain that's being covered by the drug. It just says, don't use it. Right. And then we're also sort of talking about how perhaps um, if what we were do to do instead as a church, if we were to become more psychologically evolved and mature, we could trust, uh, we could be trusted as members to use our um, increasing knowledge and autonomy and wisdom and choose for ourselves what is good for our bodies rather than having sort of these prescriptions that some of which are not, don't even make sense right. slapped on us and some pretty heavy, uh, significant consequences for not obeying these somewhat arbitrary, the somewhat arbitrary list that has sort of, um, grown. Incidentally, several of you have asked me to create an episode with the history of the word of wisdom. And the reason why I'm actually not going to do that is because it's already been done. So I'm going to refer you to 
Lindsay Hansen Park does a phenomenal study of the history of the word of wisdom and all of its twists and turns and evolutions on the Year of Polygamy podcast, episode number 161. Mm. I've had several people message me about that. And so I've actually got it saved in my podcast app so that I can just tell them. So now you all know 161. <laughs> so go to that and it'll blow your mind. So one thing to just close up the word of wisdom, I will say, I, I do think when we're talking to children, it is different than when you're talking to adults. Sure. So we have been very careful with our children to talk to them about the dangers of alcohol and have made it a family rule that we, we don't drink. Um, again, not because I think that a glass of wine in your adulthood is a, is a sinful thing, but because I do recognize that children don't have the capacity to handle the potential consequences that could come with drugs and alcohol and things oh, yeah. like that. And so, you know, it, when, when you're talking to the youth, I think there are times when it is okay to say, hey, we see this as a dangerous lane. Okay. If the ball rolls on the street, you can't just run into the street. You have to look both ways. And, and, and I think that's the same with, with, with drugs and alcohol. So in our own home, we have talked to our children many times about the dangers of what alcohol can do to people and families and so forth. But I don't like this general prescription and I don't like it being tied to the temple recommend interview. Right. I don't think that is appropriate. You know, I've spent a lot of time with a lot of people clinically who are of every other faith. And we have a lot of just sort of general conservative Christian evangelical Protestant people out here in the Midwest who I've worked with, including a lot of professional colleagues. And it's fascinating the various kinds of ideas and belief systems around alcohol. I've seen it all. I mean, I really have. And one of the one of them that really has intrigued me the most is a, a client of mine who's also a therapist who has um, shared really a very, very, like her parents, um, they're very religious people. And they had, from her own perspective, an incredibly healthy relationship with alcohol. She saw it from her childhood and she said it was never abused. It was special occasions. The children didn't drink any alcohol, but she said it was modeled how to do it well. And at the same time, this same woman says, I for myself have chosen because of my own temperament that I don't want to drink alcohol. It's not something that feels, and she has drunk it before. She says, it isn't for me. I don't like it. And I've actually thought for myself a lot about that because I'm really interested in not obeying any law or standard just because someone said so. Right. And I've thought a lot about alcohol because I have a lot of friends who are wine drinkers. And there's, there's a part of me that's like, wow, I can see the appeal. And yet for me, not because it's in a word of wisdom, but for me, I don't, I'm not, I'm not interested in what could be potential downsides to the use of alcohol. That is, but that is my choice and yeah. something that I have decided for myself. Ditto. And so, right. And so, and I've actually noticed on some forums and in our small groups, as people are grappling again with their own sense of who am I and what do I believe on my own terms, most of the people that I just listen to that's kind of where they've landed too. Now there are others who who have different feelings and they're and they're navigating that for themselves on their own terms. Right. And God bless them for that. Whatever they come to is a part of their own journey and they're going to come to something that feels like wisdom and in what they choose to do. It's right for them. Amen. So, yeah. Okay, next section says keep sex and sexual feelings sacred. They should not be the subject of jokes or entertainment. Outside of marriage between a man and a woman, it is wrong to touch the private sacred parts of another person's body, even if clothed. In your choice about what you do, look at, read, listen to, think about, post, or text. Avoid anything that purposefully arouses lustful emotions in, your, in others or yourself. This includes pornography in any form. If you find that situations or activities 
make temptations stronger than avoid them. You know what those situations and activities are. And if you aren't sure, the spirit, your parents, and your leaders can help you know. Show your Father in heaven that you honor and respect the sacred power to create life. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you want to start or would you like me to? You can start. Well, what a lot of, I mean, there's a lot in here. And so I'm probably going to just make some choices and not say everything that I would like to say. But I, I don't tend to like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't touch that. <laughs> I would rather teach our youth principles that help them understand the nature of evolving and maturing sexuality. And then embed in that under, a, a deeper understanding of perhaps why it's important to um, to preserve sexual expression until people have the appropriate, like until they're, they have chosen one another, until they're in a committed place. The appropriate intimacy. It's, exactly. It's, mm -hmm. such a, it's such a powerful way of relating. It's a loaded currency in relationship. And so for me, it's not about don't touch this and don't touch that and don't do this and don't do that. I, I almost think that sometimes that kind of language makes it more novel and alluring to actually do those things because they're <laughs> being sort of um, precluded from mm -hmm. say that they're they're by highlighting it. The novelty of it makes it seem more interesting. Yeah. Whereas if we were to teach general principles about the nature of sexuality and and the the larger why, as far as um, the way I like to teach it to um, youth and we've taught it to our kids and in other settings, is that there are various there are various types of intimacy. I think there are ten modes of intimacy if I remember the literature right. There's there's spiritual intimacy, psychological intimacy, physical intimacy, intimacy, intellectual intimacy, on and on and on. Social. Social. Mm -hmm. And and there and those kinds of intimacies, as they grow one upon the other, upon the other, um, we learn what it's like to be um, connected with other people. And many of those intimacies can be shared with all sorts of people. Right. It's wonderful to have a spiritual intimacy with friends, with family, with partner, with children, with work colleagues. And so we think about as we grow these kinds of ways of being intimate with each other on a broad scale, then we sort of start narrowing it down and we, we choose our sexual intimacy to, you know, we, we limit that to mm -hmm. one chosen person because it is sort of the uh, culmination right. of what it means to, to give ourselves in all of those other kinds of ways and this also. I don't know that I described that well. No, you described it perfectly. In other words, if you put sexual intimacy before some of those other things, it damages your ability to create some of those other intimacies. When you put the cart before the horse. I would say uh, it impedes. Damages might be a little strong, okay. but I think it, it gets in the way for sure. Way yes. Of, of developing those other intimacies first. Um, yeah, and I think that for me, the thing that jumped out in this text here was uh, do not do anything that purpose, purposefully arouses lustful emotions. You know, they, they tried so hard at the beginning to say, you know, sexual feelings are normal and not sinful. And then they just can't help themselves. They have to come back to sexual feelings or lustful well, and, and, and yeah. you know, sinful. Um, and, and, you know, what we, again, and what we try to teach our kids and what I try to teach the youth at church is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And, and they even said in here, your thoughts, they, they brought that in again. Yeah. You know, the things that you think about. Um, 
kids are going to think about sex. Stop telling them to not think about sex. Well, yeah. And actually I, I was a little bit bummed when I read that because that was in the last pamphlet as well. And the reason why I know that is because I've made reference to it countless times. If we are in fact, can you, can you take me to the place? Where is it at? Where it says don't think about. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. Right in your choices about what you do, look at, read, listen to, think about, post or text, avoid anything that purposely arouses lustful emotions in yourself and others. Okay. Well, we might as well go ahead and cancel every steak dance, <laughs> right. every youth activity, every interaction between young men and young women, because what we're actually evoking in developing adolescence is we are trying to not help them not feel them we're actually helping them we want them to learn how to navigate what it's like to experience oneself as a sexual being in connection with other boys and other girls mm -hmm. and do so in a way that is psychologically spiritually and sexually healthy so they completely missed this one because what they're actually doing is saying, avoid the whole thing. Whereas we want them not only to not avoid it, we want to encourage it to be done in a way that helps them feel like they are gaining in competence. Yeah. And they can come home and then process it with their families. You know, gosh, this is what happened. I went to the dance. I felt a certain way, you know, and then the parents can help them process Yeah, That's normal. God has given us these feelings. He wants, you know, the, the the youth to start thinking about dating and intimacy and yes. partnerships and families and things like that that that's built into you by god and so it's not that we need to avoid them or suppress them it's that we need to learn about them and learn how to make them uh into something that is growth oriented towards healthy relationships not to be afraid of them so the way i like to think about it too is uh, and this is something you guys that i'm getting i'm actually in the process of redoing um, and updating some uh, classes, uh, some courses that I'm going to be actually selling here in a little bit to you all about sexual health and talking to our kids, um, our adolescents, our children and our adolescents about um, sexual health and sexually compulsive issues and things like that. I have this whole thing that I'm getting ready to go. But one of the pieces of this that has been so important in our work, in my work with adolescents, in a lot of my public speaking and in our work with our own families is a healthier way to teach our kids about sexuality is this concept called the circle of sexuality, which puts our values as the foundation or as the core of how we teach our kids about what it means to be sexual. And then it breaks things down into five separate areas, which in these courses down the road, I'm going to go deep, deeply into. And these five various, these areas that we talk to our kids about are sensuality, intimacy, sexual identity, sexual health and reproduction and sexualization. So there are five different whole areas where we can learn about this big umbrella idea of sexuality rather than don't do this, don't do that, don't think this, don't feel that, right? It's just very, it's different. And the way I like to think about it with this big umbrella of the five circles actually helps our adolescents and actually ourselves better understand a way to become more wise in the sexual education realm rather than more sort of negative oriented and only talking about what not to do. There's a lot to learn in the area of sexual health that we could do a better job in teaching our kids about. Thank you. You're welcome. Looking forward to this. <laughs> okay. Promised blessings. Your respect for yourself and others will increase as you honor your body through your behavior, appearance, and dress. Okay. That is incorrect. As we learn to get closer to God, 
we will understand better how to properly behave, look, and dress. Right. right. If we don't actually feel fundamentally worthy first, then we're going to start judging ourselves and others based on these external things. These, the, anytime we talk about clothing or anything like that, that is an expression of that. Remember that uh, podcast episode that we did a while back on inverted spiritual values? Yeah. That when we don't have the language or the theology to teach the deeper principles, we really lock in on things like bare shoulders. <laughs> Double earrings. Right. Yeah. And so we really, if we can teach these principles and get deeper um, from like a really, like a a deep whole psychology and spirituality issue, we teach the true principles, help our adolescents and ourselves internalize these principles. And then they interpret them in their lives in ways that are sound um, and, and that work for them. Yeah. And we got, I don't know where this comes from, but in the church, we just have this mindset that the, the more we do something that doesn't feel right, the more right it'll start to feel. I, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. But, you know, it's like, well, if you don't, if you don't have a testimony of tithing, just keep paying it. And eventually you'll get a testimony of it. I'm like, eh. I, I think it's the other way around. The more we love God, the more we realize that we want to do the things that make us look like. Them. Right. So, yeah, that sentence kind of was problematic for me. Okay. The next paragraph says the Lord has promised great treasures of knowledge to those who keep the word of wisdom. A healthy body free from addictions also increases your ability to receive personal revelation, think clearly and serve the Lord. So I actually think there's some good things here. I I do think that uh, addiction can harm our ability to think clearly uh, and to certainly, uh, you know, process our life. You know, people can get addicted to things to the point where they can't work. Yep. Um, I was just watching a show last night about, you know, Native Americans, a little high school in Arizona that's mostly made up of Native Americans. And all of them, I mean, all of the kids in this high school had fathers that died from alcoholism early in life. So I, I, I do think that there is something, but I love how they said addiction. They didn't go back into the more you drink coffee, the less spirit you'll feel. Addiction is a principle that does need to be dealt with. I agree. And I think what we could do better is, is look at, this isn't just us, but in, in Christianity in general, and really in humanity in general, when someone, someone's addicted, there's pain underneath it. Yeah. So let's not tackle the addiction idea. Let's, let's chase the pain yeah. and love that person through. So they don't feel like they need to um, have the thing that they're using to numb themselves. And then once they, if they're already there, let's lovingly heal their brain without judgment. Yeah. And also yeah. The, the concept that you can't feel the spirit if you have an addiction is false. Um, we know lots of people um, who were battling addiction, going through addiction and had some very spiritual experiences. Uh, I love the ri- way Richard War says it, is that Jesus teaches us the more trouble you're in, the more God loves you and not the opposite, which is what transactional Christianity teaches. You break a rule, God withdraws himself, you feel bad, you want to come back to God, you have to go find him. He's like, no, it's the opposite. Okay. You get into trouble, you're wounded, you're addicted. God increases his love and outpouring towards you because he wants to bring you back to wholeness. So. Sounds good. Okay. Living the law of chastity brings God's approval and personal spiritual power. When you are married, this law will bring greater love, trust, and unity to your marriage. Obeying this law will make it possible for you to progress eternally and become more like your heavenly father. Your confidence will grow as you live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I, I think we've touched on a lot of that already. Yeah, we can do, it's transactional. We just wouldn't need to flip it. But other yeah. than that, I think we've covered that plenty. Okay. Um, so in the question and answer section, 
there are a couple things. Did you have anything in the Q and A's you wanted to talk about? Yeah. Okay. So the first one says, what is the Lord's standard of dress, grooming, tattoos, and piercings? The Lord's standard is for you to honor the sacredness of your body, even if that means being different from the world. Let this truth and the spirit be your guide as you make decisions, especially decisions that have lasting effects on your body. Be wise and faithful and seek counsel from your parents and leaders. So just briefly, I like that they are not um, being restrictive and saying, no, 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 this is not allowed. I think it's implied. It's implied. <laughs> that was my impression yeah. too. It's implied. It's implied. Let's and be the, honest. The implication, they're also once again throwing under the bus the beautiful people of the world. <laughs> um, which again, it's sort of the, it's it's implied and it's also spiritually accept, spiritual exceptionalism right there. Mm -hmm. And us against them, we are, we, we are safe in here. They are bad and not safe out there. And I, there's just a lot tied into that that hurts my heart because I like the world. <laughs> and I mean that because I like, I love, I have a lot of, I just really thoroughly enjoy the relationships that I have cultivated through all of my experiences with people of all faiths and no faith at all. Yeah. And that, 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 I, that offends me, it, it hurts me. We're all the body of Christ. I don't yeah. know why we create these separate walls. Well, yeah. I know why we do because we in the church think the body of Christ is just us. Right. But my interpretation of the body of Christ is every human being, every child of God. So I don't see this us versus the world. Yeah, I, it's I it's a it's an it's an echo chamber kind of philosophy where and once again, I, I get it because the folks that write these manuals have been sort of um so cushioned inside of of the church leadership hierarchy system, you know, inside of that for so, so, so many years that they don't probably necessarily have a paradigm that is reflective of what it's like to actually be, you know, one of the minions like you and me out there just mm -hmm. out in the world. Mm -hmm. Our, their paradigm is, is by default different and, and somewhat misinformed and ignorant. And, um, and that's how these manuals sometimes come about is they just don't know. And so I don't, I don't, I'm not like mad at them. I, it's just, they don't get it. Right. Yeah. Very well said. Okay. How can I overcome temptations and bad habits? Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have the power to help you. Fill your life with things that invite the power, their power, that power into your life, such as prayer, scripture, study, and service to others. Turn to Jesus Christ and his gospel, and you will find that your weaknesses can become strengths. Seek help from parents, leaders, and professional counselors as needed. For those who suffer from addiction, the church has an addiction recovery program. Okay. So I'm going to just be once again brief because I think we've, we've talked a lot about these things and we're, we're actually rounding out. We're just about ready to finish not only this episode, but this entire series, which I'm super happy about, honestly. Um, one thing, uh, a couple highlights, well, a couple of points I want to highlight, <laughs> I should say. I The ARP, Addiction Recovery Program, I have worked with a variety of people who have been through that program and there are some people who really like it. So I don't want to say categorically that it is a bad thing. I think in many cases, it's a lovely thing. I will also say though, that those who I've worked with that have struggled with sexually compulsive behavior and with alcohol, they do tend to benefit when they are involved in a program with people out in the world. The world. <laughs> um, sex, um, SA, Sexaholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes, and I've had, I've had very direct conversations with my own clients, that most of the time, if I were to, if I really dig in and I get, and they get really honest with me, they don't want to go out there and be with those people because they're better than those people. They're mm -hmm. a different kind 
of sex addict than those people out there. <laughs> and that's not, I'm not kidding you. That's kind of how they see themselves, but mm -hmm. they've been trained to see themselves that way. Mm -hmm. And so if they have issues with, with um, sexually compulsive behavior, with substances, they want to stay in house because of um, two things. I think there's the pride of, you know, the us against them. People don't understand me. And actually what I, I gently nudge, nudge them towards is you haven't truly surrendered until you recognize that you're not better than not only, you know, them, but not, you're not better than anybody. Anybody. Yeah. And so we need to, we, we know we're healing and we know we're actually overcoming um, whatever our struggles are when we are no longer needing to be better than anybody else. But we see ourselves truly as just children of heavenly parents wounded and needing a savior. So, yeah. yeah. I, I like this that, you know, hey, we should definitely include Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ in, in the addiction recovery yeah. program. But I, I think that the problem is, is that we assume that because they are, you know, the, the atonement of Jesus Christ, you know, can be our biggest source of strength, that somehow the bishop is now the one who should be in charge of addiction recovery um, instead of getting professional help. And I think the church is getting better at that at referring things out, but I know you still tell me lots of stories about bishops who have taken on too much responsibility that they are not qualified for and can actually make things worse <clears throat> before they right. make things better. Right. Well, the other thing to be, to just know from uh, the perspective of, of a professional counselor is addiction recovery, the addiction, the ARP, I should say, it's not addiction exclusive. So that didn't come out right. Any addiction or anyone that struggles with anything can go to that group. Um, whereas a lot of um, studies have shown that the best uh, recovery programs are actually uh, addiction specific. Specific to they, your problem. Um, yeah, they are. You want to go with someone who can truly sponsor you and mentor you, who has been through really um, your, they've been down your road and they know where you are coming from. And I'm not saying again that ARP is a bad thing and it's oftentimes a great supplement. But oftentimes if we think that's the only thing it may not quite be um, enough, at least in my professional opinion. And I'm, you know, other people may have other experiences and that's fine. I did like that they didn't recommend professional counseling in this section. I think that is a win. Um, that they did recommend. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. And I think at the very end, it did re make reference to, um, these are the blessings that those, did you read that part yet about the Savior's Church? These are the blessings the Savior's Church provide to help you regain control of your life. It will take time, so be patient and never give up. Yeah, I mean, there's parts of that sentence that I don't have a problem with. That last sentence, I think, is lovely. Um, it'll take time. Never give up. Never give up. Um, but I do think these are the blessings. Um, once again, when it when we are, it's just, it rubs me wrong to call this the Savior's church and that we are the Savior's chosen people because we are not better than anybody else. We are all <laughs> beloved children of God. Yeah. And so I think we just need to really... Um, those of us who are trying at, on the individual level to become more spiritually developed and more spiritually whole, we need to stop using that language and encourage those, like we need to shift that in our own um, languaging in the, in the church. Is God less likely to help a Buddhist? No, <laughs> no. And, and so that this idea that like, this is the savior's church and these are what can happen to you because you are here in some ways implies that if you weren't here and if you weren't in this church, or that someone out there in another church or no church isn't going to receive God's grace and God's love and God's help as they are suffering too. Yeah. I don't like the illusions that are being made that somehow, um, once again, we have the corner on the market on truth, healing, goodness, grace, love. 
it isn't true. And so we need to kind of stop talking that way, in my opinion. Okay. So I think we're about done. Yeah. The next section talks about what to do if you have um, same sex attraction. I know we've talked about that in other podcasts. Was there anything that you wanted to say about that before we close up? Well, I think, I mean, why don't you go ahead and read it? But I don't know that, well, why don't, we should probably read it. And I think what we can do is just sort of um, remind you about what we've already talked about. Okay. Right? I'm attracted to people of my same sex. How do these standards apply to me? Feeling same sex attraction is not a sin. So there you go again. If you have these feelings and do not pursue or act on them, you are living Heavenly Father's sacred law of chastity. You are a beloved child of God and a disciple of Christ. Remember that the Savior understands everything you experience. Through your covenant connection with him, you will find strength to obey God's commandments and receive the blessings he promises. Trust him and his gospel. So I guess I could speak into this just for a quick second, because I literally this very morning was listening to a podcast with Taylor Petrie as the guest talking about his phenomenal book, Tabernacles of Clay. And I've already read that, but it's been a minute. So I was happy on this podcast. He was reminding me of refreshing my mind on a couple of very fundamental principles that really speak into this topic right here. And that is this idea that um, whether same-sex attraction is, we've gone through waves in the church where even having the attraction itself was grounds for excommunication historically. So it used to be that way. And, um, and now it is not that way. Now you can feel it. You just can't act on it. And his whole thing that he's talking about, um, if you really want to dig into it, read his book. But one of the things that he really wants us to um, be educated around is that the doctrine of sexuality and gender in the church has been very, uh, has been all over the place, especially since about the 1950s. So for the, for that's really, well, Anyhow, his book goes uh, post-polygamy up through pretty much current because it's a fairly new publication. And the idea is that the, the, the declared doctrine is that sexuality is pre-mortal, always has been, always will be, and will never change our, our gender and sexual orientation, right? And yet we've spent a lot of time caretaking and, and like gatekeeping to make extra, extra careful sure that nobody's sexuality actually changes. If we were actually that confident that sexuality wasn't, was, was immovable and, and not fluid, we wouldn't be so worried about gender roles. We wouldn't be so worried about what it means about this idea that, that some people do have um, orientation that is to their own gender. Right. And so his whole point there is that the church really, if you do the study and look at the history, they haven't necessarily known how to handle this issue. And what they talk about, they, they change their minds and they actually speak as if doctrinally it's never changed, but in execution and in practice, it's as fluid as it could be because they're trying to hold, you know, put their thumb on it and keep it in place. Yeah. So essentially though, what this, what this particular principle or what this um, section is basically, you know, it's just reiterating is, is the current doctrine and policy of the church is you can, you can feel however you want, but you just can't do anything about it and you need to be alone forever. Yeah. And, um, and that's, you know, we... and, and miss the other law, which is to grow personally and to, to right. learn how to love and how to forgive and right. be forgiven. You miss so, all that. Yeah, we've already. Yes, yeah, so we've already covered that. Um, just very briefly, they talk about um, abuse. I was abused and I feel ashamed. Am I guilty of sin? Being a victim of any. Th that was the question. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And then this is the answer. Being a victim of any abuse or assault does not make you guilty of sin. Please do not feel guilty or shame. The Savior loves you. He wants to help you, heal you and give you peace. 
professional counselors, your family and your leaders can help. Yeah, I, I don't have much to say about that. I think it is good to articulate explicitly that there is no, um, that the, the, uh, an abuse victim is not um, at fault. And I think, I don't know if this is connected or not, but I know you and I had um, recently learned about, there was an old conference talk about 30 years ago. I think it was given <laughs> by Elder, um, oh, the guy Richard that talks really soft. It's, yeah, it was Richard G. Scott. And he basically did go through and talk mm-hmm. about how you are, um, how, how there is partial blame to the victim. And so I'm not 100% sure this is connected, but that has been, um, once again, that was in a general conference talk many, many years ago. So at least we are um, setting the record straight that a victim of assault is um, is obviously not not to blame. Not not to blame. Does not need so, to repent of anything. Okay, I think we are ready to take a pause, everyone. So grateful to have you guys all here. It has been um, a pleasure, and Nathan and I have learned so much about this um, strength of the youth manual with you as we have been able to go through it with you. If you are enjoying this podcast, please um, rate and review us and let us know what is um, helping you. It is really, really helpful for us to know how you're being helped. And it really actually more so than us is helpful for other people so that they can know that we are a trustworthy source. We really, really do care about our church. This is our home. You are our people and we want to help our church become more whole and healthy. If you're interested in joining a, a small group, We have four small groups that are full and running and one starting in January. If this interests you, you can reach out to me at info at ValerieHammaker.com or at Latter-day Struggles Podcast. And last but not least, if you are interested in getting some individual therapy or coaching, go ahead and let me know also at info at ValerieHammaker.com. I do a few time limited sessions with people and, and I also have people that work for me that can help you with that as well. Okay, you guys, it's been so great to be with you. We will talk to you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.